Psalm 115. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak, eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel, feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the human race. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is the word of God. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that whether we're new to these things or very familiar with them, that you would give us uh, sharp minds to study, to understand. But more than that, would you give us hearts that long for and love your truth, that know truth when we hear it and rejoice in it. Amen. Why on earth did they do it? That's the question. Uh, Why would you do it? I know all of them have perfectly serviceable showers in their houses. It's not for personal hygiene reasons that they got baptised. So why would normal, rational adults choose to follow Jesus Christ? It's just an odd thing to do. Why would you do that? See, most people in our culture would think that, to be, that Christianity is, is basically like drinking. It's like drinking alcohol. It's all right in moderation, a little bit at the weekend. But if it starts to impact the way you work or your relationships, you've got some serious problems. Christianity is like alcohol. That's the way our culture thinks. But did you, I mean, did you see the, the sort of things they were saying? I submit to Christ as my Lord. I come to him as the way, the truth, the life. Those are not statements of moderation. Those are statements of complete commitment. So why would you do that? Now, the answer to that question comes in the reading we just heard. But the same reading that answers that question asks each of us a question. It asks each of us, who is your God? Now, before you check out at that point, I don't believe in any God, and turn to your smartphone, let me just encourage you to hit pause. Because what the Bible means by God is a little bit different from what we think it probably means. Uh, There's a... 
There's somebody here who is a, a grand master. Is that the right word? Probably not. Grand wizard's definitely the wrong word. But uh, who, is, who is a supremo at uh, the American quiz show Jeopardy. Uh, champion many, many weeks in a row, Tom Walsh. Uh, a genuine celebrity amongst us. If you form an orderly queue, he'll be happy to sign autographs afterwards. I kid you not. Uh, but in Jeopardy, as I'm sure you know, uh, the, the particular quirk of Jeopardy as a quiz show is instead of giving the answers, you have to give the questions. So... Um, the 1815, the question, what is the battle of, what was the date of the Battle of Waterloo you would come up with? So you're given the answer, you have to come up with the question. When the, when the Bible answers God, we think we know what the question is. It's a question about which religion do you follow? Are you Christian or atheist or Buddhist or, you know, we think it's, we think it's something to do with religion. But actually the Bible's asking a whole different series of questions. The question the Bible is asking, to which the answer is Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, is what do you look to to give ultimate meaning to your life? What do you value above everything else? What are you willing to sacrifice almost anything to get, to hold on to? See, those aren't religious questions, those are life questions. And when the Bible talks about God, it's talking about the answer to those questions. Not just the, I'm feeling religious, which one shall I choose question. So whatever you tick on the census form, the truth is that all of us are worshippers according to the Bible. All of us have our gods. And this psalm encourages us to examine those gods to see whether they are worthy of our worship. And actually it encourages us to put our trust in Jesus Christ. What it really teaches, you can boil it down, you haven't got uh, points on the outline, but the, the two points really are, other gods will fail you, Jesus will fill you with praise. Other gods will fail you, but Jesus will fill you with praise. Now the Psalms are a collection of uh, prayers and songs in the Bible, mainly dating from 1000 to 1500 BC, that sort of, uh, to 500 BC, that sort of time. Uh, and this particular Psalm, Psalm 115, was prayed by the Jewish people at the time of the Passover. It was a Passover psalm, and it's a psalm of praise and confidence in God. Now, Henry V's army is supposed to have sung this after Agincourt when they defeated a much bigger French army who was supposed to annihilate them. It's probably politically correct to mention things like that, but given how badly the ashes is going, it's nice to remember something that we're good at, shooting arrows from a safe distance at other people. Um, we're very good at that, apparently. Uh, perhaps more politically correctly, uh, the Christian MP William Wilberforce prayed through this psalm when finally, after 20 years of campaigning and fighting and setbacks, he managed to convince Parliament to abolish the slave trade. It was this psalm that he prayed through. And the whole psalm stands on this first verse. Look with me. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Now the foundation of the psalm is what we learn of God in this verse. Lord in capitals uh, refers to Yahweh, the name that God used when he introduced himself for the first time really to his people as he rescued them from Israel in around 1400 BC. It's his personal name, it comes from the, the Hebrew for I am who I am. And so we're not learning uh, generic, <coughs> excuse me, we're not learning truths about generic deities, things that are common of all the gods in all cultures. We're learning specific truths 
about the God of the Bible as he reveals himself to us. And what we learn is that the God of the Bible is defined by two things, by love and faithfulness. Now, these are key Bible words. Uh, The word love is chesed, and it means not love as a feeling, but love as a commitment, a covenant. It's the God who says, I promise, I commit, I covenant that I will love you. And there is no power on earth or in heaven that will stop me doing what I've promised. That's what this word for love means. It's a, it's a big, heavy word. This is not teenage infatuation. This is love whatever the cost. And then the word faithfulness, emet, it comes from the word for truth. And it's, it's really about being true to your word. And I hope you can see how the two go together. God says, I promise that I will love you always and forever and whatever, whether you deserve it or not. And I, God, am faithful to do everything I promise. God commits and God keeps everything that he's committed to. God promises and he keeps every promise. That's what love and faithfulness mean in these verses. And in one sense, uh, that's the whole point of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of the Old Testament history. That's why there's so, many, uh, so much in the Old Testament. The hundreds of pages for hundreds of years so that you and I can read the customer reviews. Can see whether this God really does what he says. Whether he does love as he promises. The proof of the pudding is in the history of Israel. And the proof is there, which is why the, the psalmist says, Look, when good things have happened, not to us, Lord, be glory, but to your name. Because when good things happen, it's because you're a God who loves and who is faithful. Now that statement about God leads to two sections that raise two questions. What are you being shaped by and what are you trusting in? And that gives us this great truth that other gods will fail you, but Jesus will fill you with praise. So it asks two questions and it gives us two answers really. What are you being shaped by and what are you trusting in? And it teaches us that other gods will fail us, but Jesus will fill us with praise. So firstly, what are you being shaped by? The tone rather changes from the glory of verse 1 to verse 2. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Now the verses that follow are undeniably punchy, we could say. Uh, They're written at a time when people were a little bit less concerned with trigger speech and the sensitivity of snowflakes. And so they're, they're a robust dialogue, we might put it. And as we read them, we need to get over the kind of, ooh, isn't this a bit offensive? Because there's a much more important question to ask often. We don't want to be needlessly offensive. We should never seek to offend or be careless about offending. But always we should be asking another question, which is not just, do I find this offensive? But is this true? Is this true? Now, it begins in verse 2 with the Jewish believer being taunted, where is your God? Because they had no statues, no idols, no physical deities. They worshipped a God you couldn't see, a God you couldn't touch. And many here, I guess, who trust in Jesus will have heard similar taunts in 21st century London. How is your imaginary friend? Oh, you believe in the sky fairy, do you? Oh, well, myself, I'm a scientific person. I need evidence for the things I believe. But if that works for you, then, you know, uh, I'm happy to tolerate your belief. Now, it may be said with a sarcastic tone of voice, but actually it does make a good point. Where is God? I mean, come on. All of us gathered here. Have any of you seen the God of the Bible? 
What are we doing worshipping him? The response of the Old Testament believer comes in verses 3 to 8. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. Ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. A couple of years ago, we were fortunate enough um, to go to Egypt, and we went to the uh, temple city at Karnak, which was awe-inspiring. I think there may even be a picture um, of one of these enormous statues. The Egyptian gods, the size of a London bus turned on its end. I mean, they're absolutely colossal. And you can imagine the Old Testament believer and the God of the Bible looking up at these great statues and feeling rather intimidated. You know, what have you got? We've got this. We've got dozens of them. They're all over Egypt. What have you got? Nothing. But, but gods of stone and metal and wood aren't all that impressive when you get past the physical spectacle and think about it. See, there's not much point in having a head the size of a Range Rover if the ears are made of stone and can't hear anything. And the, the mouth can't make a sound and the eyes are just lumps of stone. Can't see anything. You might be able to see the gods of stone and wood and metal, but they do nothing. But you cannot see the God of the Bible. But he does. He acts. He works. Verse 3, he does whatever he pleases. He's in heavens. He's not constrained by physical matter. He does what he wants. He's God. He's the creator. He is beyond all our limitations that we think of and feel. And the reason that the people of the Old Testament in the Bible were told, don't make statues, don't make idols, is that God is nothing like an inanimate lump of stone. He does see, he does hear, he does act, he does speak. He's far too great to be represented by some carved image. He's not part of the physical creation that you can represent him. He's the uncreated creator. He rules over everything. Um, Here's some plasticine or Play-Doh, if you um, can't see it, there's probably on the screen as well. Is there anybody here who is particularly artistic and creative? So, oh, somebody down here, you're, yeah, that's always nice, you're being volunteered by a friend. Um, what, I would, uh, what I would like is uh, somebody who is particularly creative and artistic, which is not me. I would like you to uh, mould this plasticine and Play-Doh uh, to be an awe-inspiring representation of the Grand Canyon, conveying a sense of its spectacle, its grandeur, and its immense size. Do you think you... Of course you can't. It's a tiny little lump of Play-Doh. But to think that you could take any amount of stone or wood or metal and accurately represent the God of the Bible, the God who made the entire creation, is equally ridiculous. God has no physical body. He created all physical matter. But extraordinarily, he hasn't left us without evidence. Those of us who need things we can touch and and see and prod and test before we believe anything have not been left cut out by this religion. You see, the God who is uncreated entered his creation as the man Jesus Christ. He was recorded in history And we can examine the records and weigh the evidence. 
and find real, intellectually credible reasons for putting our trust in this God. But never forget, our God is not part of the creation. He is not so petty and small and parochial that you could ever represent him in any physical matter. But the real sting of these verses is not the comments in verses 3 to 7, the the comparison between the God of the Bible and and a lump of stone. The real sting actually comes in the final statement in verse 8. Those who make them, that is the, the stone idols, will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Here's the point. We become like what we worship. We become like the things we value. That's his point. And this isn't some weird spiritual thing as if if you worship a a stone statue, magically you become stone like Tolkien's trolls in the sunlight of the morning. It's actually just a fundamental law of the universe. And we've all seen it a thousand times. We are shaped by the things we love and value. Whether uh, Whether we use the word God or not, whether we consider ourselves spiritual people or not, we all have things that we value, that we give ultimate Uh, worth to, that we worship to use the Bible's word. And those things shape us, whether we consider ourselves religious or not. You see it with teenagers. For most teenagers, what they value most is a peer group to accept them. That's the thing that matters most. And so they are shaped by that. They're completely shaped by it, by the desire to have peer acceptance above everything. They dye their hair purple and listen to emo music for, for years on end. Uh, they'll do anything. Yeah, you've all done equally stupid things, and so have I as teenagers. We'll do anything to fit in with our friends. We dress like them. We speak like them. We listen to the same music. We develop the same accents as them. We become these identikits because we're so desperate to fit in because we value peer acceptance. Now, I think we become a bit more sophisticated as we grow up. But the principle remains, we become like what we worship. We become like what we value. Uh, People who value being in a relationship above all else become shaped by that. What what do I mean? I mean that uh, that aim, that goal starts to determine uh, what we do. How we spend our time. The people we hang out with. Our sense of right and wrong is determined by whether it'll help me get into a relationship. But more than that, you know the phrase, my other half, my better half? There is a sense in which some people so value being in a relationship that it is as if they become nothing more than a relationship. They become a half person, only really complete when, when dating. And when not dating, like Miss Havisham, it's as if they, they don't really live, just mourning for what they don't have. You become like what you worship. Or career, that too shapes you. If, you. if you value career and getting ahead in career more than anything, it'll shape what you do and how you live. I don't mean that you'll, you know, instead of surfing Facebook and of an evening, you just spend the time surfing LinkedIn. Now, that would be weird, um, very weird. But, I mean, it does start to shape your morality as shaped. Things that you would have said no to, clearly. Principles that you had a firm stance on. Well, when they stand in the way of getting ahead in the career, it's amazing how, uh, how hard we find it to hold our principles if we value our career that highly. We start seeing people in terms of how useful they are to us in our career progression. How faithful we are to our families and our friends is determined by whether it fits in with career or not. 
career begins to shape us. Uh, If you live for the approval of others and fear losing that above all else, we might rely on our looks, not me obviously, Uh, we might rely on our ability to to be witty, we might rely on our ability to manage our, our, our image, our profile through social media, and we live or die on the likes, the shares, the follows. And we become shaped by that, we become the masks that work with other people. We lose, actually we lose ourself because what matters most to us is what others think of us. And so all we are is a, is a, a reflecting board of what we think works for other people, of what we, what we think others will like, what they seem to respond to. We become like the things we value and worship. The question I think for all of us is uh, not are you being shaped by other things, but what are you being shaped by? All of us are leaning towards something in life. All of us are leaning towards something. The question is, what are you leaning towards ultimately, fundamentally? What is shaping you? What do you value most? Henry Skugel uh, writes that the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The things we value and worship and live for, they will either grow or shrivel our souls. And I think the Bible would say to every single one of us, you are not what you were meant to be. So don't sell yourself short. Don't sell yourself short. Even the very best things on earth that you might live for, they are less than what you were designed for. And deep down, I think most of us know that. We were meant for eternal life. We were meant to reflect the image of God fully and beautifully. And because of that, the Bible says, worship Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Become like him and you become the very best that you could ever be. Jesus Christ is the holiest, happiest, most courageous, least selfish, least hypocritical person the world has ever known. And if we know him and love him, we become like him. We read in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, uh, 2 Corinthians 3:18, Paul writes this. We all who with unveiled unveiled faces contemplate, gaze on the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If you're not sure you want to be like Jesus, if you think, well, really? Let me challenge you. Let me dare you. As an adult, read a reliable eyewitness account of his life. As an adult, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You can take away a free copy afterwards tonight. Read it, and then answer, do I really think there is something better than being like this man. Other gods will fail you, but Jesus will fill you with praise. And the Bible warns us that the things that we lean towards, the things that we value, will shape us. And it calls us to lean towards Jesus. Uh, Okay, secondly, verses 9 to 15. Actually, these verses press into the same issue. Um, As the psalm celebrates what it's like to trust God, it really asks us, whether we can say the same of the things that we trust in. As again, he says, look, other gods will fail you, but Jesus will fill you with praise. But this time he asks not so much what's shaping you, but what do you trust in? What do you trust in? Verses 9 to 13. 
all you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. Israelites, that's all the people, house of Aaron, that's the the priests. And those who fear the Lord, that's non-Israelites who love this God. In other words, he's saying, look, everybody, whoever you are, love, trust the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. And you can see uh, verses 9 to 13, there are two sets of three repeated phrases. Uh, Basically, I think it's like a football crowd. Um, it's slightly more repeatable than most of what you hear on the terraces. But this is what's going on. It's, it's chanting of a great crowd who are full of delight, chanting to one another about the greatness of all that they've experienced in God. They chant that God is their help and their shield, 9 to 11. They chant about the one who will bless them. And then in the last two verses, we get the reason why you would trust this God. Why seek his blessing? Why, why look to him rather than money or education or popularity or family or looks to provide you with what you need for life to be worth living? Verse 14. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Ah, okay. When you seek protection from him, it's, uh, yeah, there's nobody bigger to go to. He made heaven and earth. When you seek provision... Uh, You seek the one who owns every atom of everything that exists. He made the cosmos. Now these these verses really are an encouragement. They're a customer review to us. They say, look, when you put your trust in the God of the Bible, this is where you end up praising him for his help, his protection, and his blessing. His track record proves who he is. I mean, you can, um, Christmas is coming up, huzzah. Uh, and I hope you'll come to one of the carol services. They are absolutely brilliant. They are such a good time. And I'm sure you know what happens, carol service. If you've been before, there's some carols we sing. We listen to a phenomenal choir, uh, great music. And then um, there's some readings. And as you expect, there's readings uh, about um, Mary and the baby Jesus. There's no little donkey. It's not in the Bible. It's just children's um, song. Sorry to disappoint you. He doesn't appear. But not all the readings are about Mary and the little baby Jesus and the three wise men and Herod. Some of the readings are from the Old Testament, 700 or so years before. Some of them are even older than that, 1,000, 2,000 years before Jesus. But we have readings from the Old Testament because Jesus' arrival was promised by God. Right since the start, he said, you guys have made a right colossal mess of the world. Your behavior, your wickedness, it is appalling, but I'm going to step in and sort it out. Right from the start, he'd promised, and he promises that he would send his son who would be born to a virgin. He promised that his, his savior would be born in Bethlehem. He promised that his savior would die at the hands of his own people, but his death would, would pay for our sins. All these promises throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfills them all. You can trust this God. He does what he said he'll do. And so they praise him. They praise him because all the things he's promised he'll do for them, he does for them. You can build your life on this God. That's what makes him different from all the other things we might build our lives on. Um, I, 
my wife is a fan of Lilo's. That's the one uh, demand if we go on holiday somewhere hot. Uh, it could be a whole lot more high maintenance than that. I've done pretty well there. A Lilo is not a big order purchase, even for a man on my income. It's perfectly doable. But all the Lilos, they have a, um, a tag on the bottom, you'll see, printed in about 15 different languages that says, this is not a life-saving device. Do not rely on this to save your life. Because Lilos are wonderful if all you want is to laze around in the med uh, with your toes dangling in the water, soaking up the sunshine. But if you're out in the middle of the Atlantic and your ship goes down in a heavy storm, you do not want to trust yourself to a lilo, especially not if it's in the shape of a swan with a couple of drinks holders. The, those things, they just don't survive. The, the waves pound and they fall apart. If you try to lean on it to save your life, it will fail you. If all you want it for is a bit of fun, they're wonderful. And you see, this is what the Bible teaches us about uh, the other things we might look to. Families, careers, relationships, they are great. They do help make life rich and fun. They're wonderful. But when you try to build all the meaning of your life on them, when you try to make them justify your existence... When you build everything on them, they just can't take the weight. It's why, to be honest, if you notice, people who are so, it's, it's the people who have been absolutely desperate to get married, who so often in the long term are most frustrated and unhappy in marriage. Because no relationship could ever fulfill the longings that they've built into it. <coughs> but when you trust in Jesus Christ, <coughs> You trust in someone who will never fail you. And who as God can take the weight. He is God. You can build all the weight of your expectation on him and he will not sink. He's God in human flesh. He also means you can enjoy the other things properly. Because they no longer have to take the weight of your... You've got to build your life on something. All of us need something that we live for. Something that we value ultimately. Something that makes our life worthwhile. And when that job is taken, well, then relationships can just be relationships, which is wonderful. Work can be work, and you can enjoy it. Everything else in life makes sense and can be enjoyed so much more once you stop treating it as ultimate. Leave that job for Jesus and enjoy it for what it is. But perhaps better still, and not only can you rely on Jesus, but the best thing about him is what happens when we fail him. He'll never fail us, but what happens when we fail him? If you fail your career, what happens? You get sacked. If you fail a relationship, you get dumped. If you fail to say the right thing and look the right way, you get ignored. But what happens when we fail the God of the Bible? Well, there's a hint there, a wonderful hint in verses 9 to 11. He is our shield. He is a God, verse 3, who does whatever he pleases, whatever he wants. And what is it that he wants to do? What pleases him? What pleases him is to be our shield. A shield protects you from a blow that would destroy you. That's what a shield does. And on the cross, Jesus died in our place. He took the blow of justice that you and I deserve. He stepped between us and the just punishment of God. And as our shield, he absorbed that blow, that death for us. So that we can enjoy God's blessing forever. That's the heart of the Christian message. 
A God who won't fail us and who forgives us when we fail him. Other gods will fail you, but Jesus will fill you with praise. Now these final verses might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because what they do is they draw the boundary between us and God rather too clearly. He's up there and we're down here. He's worthy of praise and basically we exist to praise him. It sounds rather demeaning when you read it. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth is given to the human race. It's not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It's we who extol the Lord, both now and forever. Praise the Lord. Now, if you want a definition of enthusiastic applause, type into YouTube, Kim Jong-un speech. Uh, and uh, I advise you to go to the end, because they go on for a very long time, and they're in Korean, um, so I can't understand a word of them. But... Um, The end of them is brilliant. Once our glorious leader is finished, there is this basic race. You can see people. It's like, can I be the first onto my feet? And and you've never seen grins wider or clapping that is more enthusiastic. And everybody is just giving it some. And it goes on and on and on and on. And it keeps going. It goes on almost as long as his speeches, which go on far, far too long anyway. There was, a, there was an interview with a defector a couple of years ago which shed some light on this. And they said, if you were caught yawning in one of his speeches, you're taken out and shot. If you don't clap enthusiastically, you're taken out and shot. If you're the first one to stop clapping, can you guess? You're taken out and shot. Uh, so people just keep going. And I don't know how they manage it. Everybody stops at the same time or what, but... No one really wants to live like that. But praise is not always a desperate chore for pathetic minions. Sometimes it's just a delight. A number of years ago um, now, I had uh, one of the few cultural experiences of my life. Um, I've never experienced, um, up to that point really, good violin music. The, uh, The only violins I'd heard were being played by close relatives and sounded like the central line when it gets on that bit of track where... The curves are a bit too sharp. You know the bit I mean? Near Bank Station. But um, I went to university with the son of, um, uh, of a guy called Jose Luis Garcia, who was one of the foremost violinists in the world. And he invited me to um, a private concert that was being given at the Spanish Embassy. There were only about 20 people in the room. And we were sat. Uh, in a, the whole thing was about the size of this stage. And one of the world's greatest violinists was sat right in front of us. And I thought, well, I might as well go. You know, it doesn't cost me anything. And it was incredible. Here you had one of the best people on the planet performing his art at the top of his game. And it was just emotionally breathtaking. It was extraordinary. It was so beautiful. I cannot even begin to describe it. I genuinely can't because I'm just not cultured enough. I haven't got the language. But it was just incredible. Now, when he finished playing, nobody had to force me to stand up and clap. I didn't look at my watch and think, well, have I been clapping long enough? A polite length of time. It, it, just, it, was, del- it was a delight. It was a privilege. It was a joy to clap this man who had blessed us in that way. And the better the thing is, the less of a chore it is to delight, to praise. Praise just becomes delight. And when you know the experience of uh, not being saved at the Battle of Agincourt, 
not winning a long campaign in Parliament for a noble cause, but when you know the reality of deserving eternal hell, facing God's justice and being in eternal death, and instead, God freely giving you eternal life because his son has died in your place. When you know that, when you know that, it's not a demand that you praise this God. It is a delight. I think there's probably uh, three groups of people in this room, perhaps. There'll be some who are not sure whether they believe this. I would just encourage you, find out whether Jesus is the faithful God he claims to be. Uh, Come along to church on Sunday. Come along to honest questions when we look at some of the big questions of life. Take away one of the Gospels. Take it away for free. Ask the person you came with. Write all your questions, scribble all over it, and then meet them up for a drink and go through it. But look into it. Secondly, I guess there'll be some here who trust in Jesus, but the truth is that life is hard and you're really struggling in the darkness. And you hear this talk of a God who provokes praise, but you don't feel it in your heart. And I would encourage you to look at the faithfulness of the God who has kept every promise he's ever made. As we get towards Christmas, look back through the Christmas readings. Remember how God kept every promise over hundreds of years. And hold on. Hold on because the Jesus who died for you, who rose for you, will bring you home. And thirdly, I guess there'll be others of us who are tempted to make other things the real gods of our life. We know Jesus, but with our lips we confess him, but in our hearts we're tempted to build our lives on career or relationship or money or reputation or status. I would encourage you, look back to Jesus. But do more than that. Look at Jesus and look at the things you're tempted by and ask yourself, has this thing died for me? Which of these things offers forgiveness? Which of these things will give me eternal life? Just as we close, let me ask you a very strange question. Uh, Does your God make you sing? Does your God make you sing? I don't mean to be rude, but the thing you're building your life on, does it make you want to sing? Does it fill you with praise and will it do that forever? So I wonder if you realize, if you're a Christian coming here, how weird it is that we come here every week and we sing enthusiastically. That is an odd thing to do. But every week as we gather, whether it's been an easy week or a brutal week, the truth is that as we look at what Jesus has done for us on the cross, as we're reminded of it, as we see people being baptized, going through death and back to new life in him, When we remember all that he has promised, we have reasons to sing. See, other gods will fail you. But week after week, year after year, decade after decade, Jesus will fill you with praise. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that unlike so many things we're tempted to build our lives on, that he will never let us down. And thank you that when we fail him, there is forgiveness. Our Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is characterized by love and faithfulness. And we pray that we would remember that, we would hold on to that, and that we would be filled with praise because we know it's true. Amen.